0: Hello
3: and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community getting angry, venting their spleen and putting history to rights. The podcast that is therapy for historians. I'm public historian Paul Babel and I'm here with my ever loyal co-host and fellow historian Kyle Glover. Hello. And for this week's guest, we have one of the first podcasters we ever met in the industry. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the producer and host of the award-winning Cold War Conversations podcast ian sanders ian welcome to history rage
4: well thanks very much for that very grand intro there um, i'm delighted to be on the show been a big thank fan since i discovered you you'd launched this uh, this podcast and uh, some amazing guests and i hear you've got some further amazing
3: guests to come so not least of which tonight yes. thank you oh. very much for your praise <laughs> If anybody else wants to come on History Rage and compliment us, you are more than welcome to do so. <laughs> no, welcome aboard. Feeling angry? Feeling the rage?
4: Yeah. Yeah, no, I am. I am. I'm yeah. ready. I'm ready for this. I'm, you, know.
3: you might slightly doubt it, but believe me, the tidal wave is coming. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so we met you a few years ago now when we were at Hat Green Nuclear Bunker for the Soviet threat event. And we've followed you and Cold War Conversations ever since. Um, the coveted Cold War Conversations coaster even forming part of our display. But for our other listener, tell us a bit about yourself, your background, your podcast. Well,
4: I I guess I'd call myself a public historian as well. I've always been a massive fan of history, uh, probably influenced by my parents. and. Cold War conversations came about because I was looking for a subject that would really fire me up and allow me to create a podcast. I'd, I'd previously done some work in local radio and really wanted to pursue my passion for history. And the area that I wanted to do was to speak to people who'd actually experienced that period. It's a very formative period of my life through my teenage year and years and, and early twenties. Yeah. Mine and too. yeah. That's
2: and, and mine, but, uh, <laughs> uh... <laughs>
3: yeah, Carl's the baby <laughs> of the group here.
4: And, you know, the, the thing that I was aware of was, for example, with world war two, a lot of the oral histories weren't captured, you know, before people essentially died. Yeah. yeah. And, Similarly with the Cold War, that's happening because, you know, Korean War veterans are not that thick on the ground. Um, and ev- even people who served in the, you know, 60s and 70s are, are now getting to quite an elderly age. So yeah. I was keen to capture these stories before they're lost. And the the sort of strapline of Cold War conversations is capturing the stories of the Cold War before they're lost. And it's a collection of mainly personal stories of people who experienced the Cold War, from KGB spies to military people to the civilian experience as well. So it's really the whole gamut of the Cold mm-hmm. War experience told by those that were there.
3: Yeah, yeah. I remember meeting up with you at uh, Imperial War Museum as well, and they you were interviewing a collection of people there, being, you know, being able to talk to a you know lady from East Berlin you know about her experiences yeah. in there and how her feelings about how the wall came down and that you know we you get a lot of these oral histories that are all focused on the military side uh, of things and the you know the civilian the cold the cold war had a home front in many many countries and uh, and it's good to see that they, that's going to be captured forever and it's fascinating stuff
4: yeah. And, and also the, the thing I'm also keen to capture, and we've got quite a number of episodes now, is the women's experience of mm. the Cold War. You know, it's not all blokes with tanks and, and military hardware, as you, as you said, it's the civilian experience as as well. And that's probably been one of the areas that's probably most surprised me since I've been doing this is how powerful and moving some of those stories have been. Yeah. But we we'll are come on to that. Later. Yeah, we'll come
3: on to that. But I just like the the range in those women's stories that you get because you've got everything from the kind of East German housewife that has to queue, queue for bread to to like the, the the West Berkshire middle-class woman who joined the Greenham Common protests. And yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's just yeah. so and, huge.
4: Yeah, well, it's great because I wanted a subject where I knew there'd be well, no shortage of... Candidates that mm. I could interview, and you know, I'm getting emails weekly from people who say, Look, I'd really like to uh share my story with you. So, um, the demands out there and the listenership is growing. There's a real appetite for Cold War history out there, which I think is driven to some extent by some of the TV stuff. Yeah, you know, Strangers to Things, you know, on Netflix is set in the Cold War, you've had the Deutschland. 80s series yeah i haven't seen all of um,
3: those but i'm currently halfway through deutschland 86
4: right right well i'd, I'd recommend yeah that, those, those are really good i mean i have a little bit of an issue with it i don't like too much the slapsticky sort of elements mm-hmm. of, of it but uh, but apart from that it's been good for uh showing people what Abel archer was about but right. um yeah no it's great there's a real appetite for cold war history so that's all good good for me
3: Yeah, so moving on from what's good for you to moving on from what eats away at your very soul, let's come in with what History Rage is all about. So, Ian, please tell us then, what is the one, you know, historical Cold War issue that you just wish people would stop believing, that they would just get over?
4: Well, the, the thing that riles me the most is people not thinking that the Cold War was a proper war. Yeah. You know, the, the the name itself probably confuses people. You know, they, they think that, yes, there was this confrontation between two superpowers, but really nobody was, you know, killed. There were some demonstrations and things like that. But you've got massive conflicts in this period. I mean, if you look at the Korean War, which is really very much a forgotten war, yeah. there were millions killed in that it was one of the most destructive wars of modern times certainly as far as civilian population was concerned you've got Vietnam which people are familiar with you know a large number well large number of American casualties I was going to say but again that is completely outweighed by the civilian casualties and I think people forget about the 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 people who who died in the cold war because there's you can obviously point at the battles and and those those sort of things but there's also uh, the proxy wars that were going on in central america and africa so you know the angolan civil mm-hmm. war which was propped up by the cubans and the soviets fighting against the south africans who were being armed by uh the west in the main you know hundreds of thousands killed there uh the nicaraguan civil war i mean I did a, a a search to see how many proxy wars had actually gone on during the Cold War, and I came to a number of about sixty yeah so and many of those were pretty minor conflicts, but for the people who were actually there they weren 't yes. minor they were they were a matter of life and death and i'm losing the uh the will to speak now about this because I'm I it, it frustrates me. I mean, obviously doing a podcast about the Cold War, you're just really interested and passionate about that subject. And uh it does frustrate me that more people aren't interested in the subject because I think it's probably one of the most interesting conflicts because there's so many different shades in there.
3: Oh yeah, shit, one of the things with the Cold War is if you want to take any historical speciality it, the Cold War's got it, you know. If you yeah. want to do, you know, the tactically what went wrong in Vietnam, it's there. If you want to do, how do you how, how do you survive, or how how do you just shop and feed a family on what is available to you in East Germany in nineteen eighty eight? You know, it's it, it's also there. You know, you've got yeah, social history, history, you've got military history, mm-hmm. you've got political history, you've got the history of crime and assassination, smuggling, black market, espionage. It's, I'm running out of steam there, I <laughs> Yeah, people, yeah, come yeah. Well, on, get got it popular in
4: this. culture. I mean, I've done yeah. I've done various episodes on popular culture and it's immense frustration to me that I do episodes that I think that is such an amazing story and it just doesn't get the listenership that I would expect it to get. If I did spies every week, not a problem. Yeah, yeah, a Everybody washed. loves an espionage story. But if I want to talk about a 12-year-old girl in Romania who's Father was a dissident, and she had the Romanian secret police turn up in her house after coming home from school. Really disappointing listener numbers there, whereas that is probably one of the most powerful and moving episodes I've ever recorded mm. I mean, I was choking up in in that because the 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 story is just incredible where you know one air she describes having to leave her grandfather behind because the the family eventually emigrated to the US knowing that he was suffering from dementia and that they would never see him again
3: Oof.
4: and it, and that was just one of the the descriptions she gave and you know the power of hearing it in the words of the person who experienced it with every nuance breath yeah. and and hesitation is just incredible and i find it just an immense privilege to be able to speak to these people and and share their stories wider
3: yeah going back that was another
4: mini rant on its own yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
3: well that's what history rage is about get as many of them out as you like yeah Keep going. It's it's all it's all content. Keep going. So, what is it really? That think makes the Cold War so different to other wars in the eyes of historians? Why do people not view it as a uh, as a real war? I mean, just to just to give an example here, from when I went looking through up if you if you take Korea and Vietnam completely off the table, more Americans die in the Cold War than in the first Gulf War. So, why is it not a proper war in the eyes of? people in the wider world what do you think
4: i think it's because there wasn't really a major conflict between the 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 major powers i think you know the 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 thing that most resonates or or one of the things that most resonates with people about the cold war is the nuclear threat the danger of a global mm-hmm. nuclear war and the fact that the soviet union and nato did not end up in open conflict with each other is one of the reasons why i think people don't treat it as a, as a proper war they conveniently ignore all the proxy wars that were going on and i would argue that vietnam was a, a partial proxy war although you know the u.s did have direct military involvement in yes, there yes. but there's also things like and i've been trying to get a number for this is the number of military people who were killed in exercises during the period of the Cold War. I mean, the the Soviets weren't particularly in favour of health and safety, and neither was NATO for that matter. But that must be in the tens of thousands of people who died. You speak to, you know, I've spoken to US Air Force pilots and pilots of other air forces. And, you know, the crews that were flying the Starfighter, which was also known as the Widowmaker, I think various other planes were known as the Widowmaker, but as well. But you know they were crashing on a regular basis because they were difficult to fly, yeah. and it's those forgotten numbers that all add up yeah. to a pretty huge yeah. number. You know, you're getting to World War II sort of numbers almost.
3: Yeah, and then when you factor in kind of people that were at chemical weapon test plants, people that were carrying out the atomic tests that, that have picked up long-standing illnesses. The you know the casualties just go on and on and on.
4: Yeah, and I, I've been lucky enough to interview a couple of those veterans, uh the nuclear test veterans. I was invited by the BNTVA, the charity for them, to their conference. And the stories there, I interviewed a guy who was flying in and out of mushroom clouds sampling the uh, radioactivity in a uh, Canberra plane. And I've got another interview that I've yet to record, who was a Royal Navy guy who was basically sent directly onto this atoll where the bomb had gone off to take samples without any radiation protection oh, or, or anything like that. And they're just phenomenal stories and they're forgotten voices. You yeah. know, they're, they're, they've they not not been heard before. So, I find it hard to believe why people don't treat it as a, as a as a proper war. I mean, I guess at, almost. Well, I was going to say I'm not that fussed about it, but I am fussed about it because I th- I think it's it's just such a. Well, it it also set the the context for the situations we're in at the moment with Russia. You know, the expansion of NATO post the fall of the Berlin Wall eastwards means that NATO is now right on the border of yeah. Russia. And Russia, you know, I'm not an apologist for Putin, but, you know, they they remember Barbarossa and the casualties that they suffered in what they call the Great Patriotic War or World War II, as we would call it, those huge numbers of casualties. And the position they're in at the or the the way they feel at the moment directly relates to the end of World War Two, the Cold War, and their experiences, you know, th- through that period. So, yeah, th- there's direct echoes of what happened in the Cold War right the way through to the present day, in in Afghanistan as well with the Soviet experience in there, which again is another war that's, you know, forgotten about in in that whole. You know, list
2: of Cold War proxy wars and other conflicts that were in there. So, to carry on with that sort of train of thought, when people think of the Cold War, we tend to think of, you know, Korea, if at all, uh, Vietnam, Cuba, Cuban Missile Crisis, those sorts of conflicts. From people you've spoken to, what are the events in the Cold War that are just as important as those, but aren't as well known?
4: I would say it's the individual stories of the cold war because yeah. i think people are more familiar with that grand strategic picture um and when i met you at hack green you had that wonderful simulation of the cuba missile crisis which it's i'm always four embarrassed people to say yeah which i'm always embarrassed to say as a cold war historian that i failed to save the world <laughs> um on turn five yep yeah just rub it in just <laughs> rub it in paul um But one of of the the stories that I do find fascinating about the Cuban Missile Crisis is the story of Vasily Arkhipov, who was a Soviet naval officer on a submarine that was trying to break through the Cuban Missile Blockade that was set up by the U.S. Navy. Now, what the U.S. Navy hadn't realized is that these submarines had nuclear-armed torpedoes. And... The U.S. Navy was under orders to try and get these submarines to surface to identify them. So the U.S. Navy found Arkhipov's submarine and were dropping what are euphemistically termed dummy depth charges. But if you're actually in a submarine and hearing these go off, there's not a lot of difference between those and a real one in terms of what you're hearing. They're explosive charges to try and get them to surface. So Arkhipov is one of three officers on this submarine. The captain of the submarine at this point is getting really stressed out because they've been out of radio contact with Moscow. They've no idea what's going on. They can't even pick up local radio stations. And he thinks that the war has started and he wants to launch this nuclear torpedo. And his second officer says, yes, I agree. So it's down to Arkhipov to agree or disagree He says no and is potentially one of a number of men who saved the world from global nuclear extermination. And I say one of because there's a whole litany of people who had decisions like that on a knife edge. And thankfully for us, they decided the right way and didn't actually fire or... Ignite a nuclear war.
3: I mean, if we look at the um, the sort of launching of a nuclear torpedo, there. I mean, we appreciate everybody will go. Well, the next step is retaliation, followed by global thermonuclear war, followed by utter annihilation. But just in terms of what one nuclear torpedo, what would that have done to the American Atlantic fleet that was at that blockade at the time?
4: Well, it it potentially would have wiped out multiple ships i mean it's it's not like a strategic nu- nuclear weapon it's a much lower yield mm. but they were designed to take on targets like aircraft carriers and th- those sort of targets that was the the main idea is to be able to take out what would have been a capital ship at that time of uh, an aircraft carrier target or to or to take out a number of ships that were pretty close together but this would have been the first time a nuclear weapon had been fired since Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how Kennedy would have been able to react to that in terms of public opinion in the U S without some form of retaliation. I don't know. I, you know, obviously with the way that Kennedy handled the Cuban missile crisis, you would imagine that cooler heads would have prevailed and global nuclear war wouldn't have turned out of that. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one because, I mean, you know, at this point, some of the missiles were already in Cuba as well, and they yeah. were under local control. They weren't under sort of control from Moscow directly. They had the authority to launch locally those Soviet commanders. Yeah. So if they'd, they'd got news of a nuclear, rela- you know, you, you just don't know. And you know what it's like in, in warfare. The command yeah. and control breaks down really
3: quickly. Yeah, no plan survives first contact with the enemy.
2: Exactly.
4: And of course, exactly.
3: there, uh, there was something like there's over a 100 nuclear-armed artillery pieces that were actually not just under the control of Soviets, under the control of Castro. Yeah. And they, that that was one of the things I found more worrying is that there are, there are many, many people in the Cold War that shouldn't have access to anything nuclear. And Fidel Castro is right up there at the top of the list. I mean, they actually took the weapons off him because he was too unstable. Didn't they? Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And that was incredible because I interviewed Sergei Khrushchev, who's the son of Nikita Khrushchev in an early episode. And he was 20 odd at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So he wasn't a young kid. And his father was actually sharing some of the stresses and tensions that he was under. And he told me about this nuclear armed artillery. And how his father almost felt like boxed into a corner with Castro because Castro had announced that he'd gone communist. He had to support him in in some way. And what people forget is the actual deployment of the missiles on Cuba was in direct retaliation to the Americans deploying Jupiter missiles in Turkey as close to the Soviet Union as the missiles were in Cuba. But that's often conveniently forgotten (laughs) by people.
0: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
3: So based on the you know, interviews that you've done so far, again, the stories that you've, uh, the, that you've gathered, whose story is the Cold War film we've yet to see?
4: Well, I had to think long and hard about this because with 210 episodes, there's, there's a lot of choice there. And, I, you know, every episode is special in its own way. But one of the ones that I think would probably make a really good film is the story of uh, General Sir Robert Corbett. Now, yeah. um, he ended up being the uh, British commander in Berlin, in West Berlin, when the Berlin Wall fell. But earlier in his career, in 1961, just before the war was raised, he was a young officer and he was in charge of a uh, supply train coming across East Germany into West Berlin. And he told me the story of this train being stopped by East German uh, transport police. And they have a confrontation and he says the East Germans had cocked their weapons, we'd cocked our weapons. And I think the words he uses and therein I could see the seeds of World War III because he thought that, you know, this military confrontation, if they'd opened fire, even though it was a few men with rifles and submachine yeah. guns, could have triggered World War Three. And little did he know at that point that he was going to be commandant of the British forces in West Berlin. And when the Berlin Wall fell, those listeners who are familiar with Berlin will, will know of the Soviet War Memorial in uh the Tiergarten in West Berlin. Now that was in the British zone and it was guarded by Soviet troops and when the Berlin Wall fell there was obviously a lot of activity around the wall a lot of people getting drunk and a lot of tension there and uh Sir Robert had heard that the Russian troops were getting jumpy and the yeah. last thing he wanted was some sort of shooting incident so he went and saw those troops and he took them, uh, the, the local commander there said, fine, you know, please speak to them. And he took them into the guardhouse there and he, he looked them all in the eye because it was only about 15 or 20 young Soviet soldiers. And he said, look, whatever happens out there, I will keep you safe. I will look after you and I will keep you safe. And it really brought down the tension because these soviets really didn't know what was going on they could hear fireworks going off and and all sorts of things going on and then later on in the day corbett got a message from one of his uh, officers saying we've had a weird contact from a channel that hasn't been used since the berlin airlift (laughs) and it's it's a message from the soviets and so corbett says "Well, well what's the message and he says well it's a really strange message it's to you sir and it just says, We will never forget what you did today. Wow. And it's it's an amazing story. It's a two-part episode that I did with him. Episode 136 is the first one. And it's a story I hadn't heard before. Yeah. And I, I just think that there's two, you know, there's a great movie there. There's, you know, Corbett going to Berlin in nineteen sixty one, just after the war goes up and that confrontation. And then his experiences in Berlin as you know the commander of the british forces because i also talked to him about you know what was the the plan for defending west berlin you know what 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 had you you know what had you got in 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 place there and he you know describes this you know well i can't remember the exact words he uses but it's something like you know well we we were just you know our intention was to hold out until a political solution was found (laughs) Um which is you know obviously the 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 answer you'd you'd expect, but you know he he said that after the wall opened, they were able to go into East Germany, and he said you know we went in their barracks and their vehicles were all bombed up you know ammunition, petrol, and everything ready to you know cross the border they weren't going to mess they they were seriously you know exercised and planned for an invasion of 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 West Berlin. But he was a great, great guy. He really made me laugh because he he said to me, "He said, Ian, Ian, have you served?" And he he thought I'd been in the army, and I had to uh, sadly <laughs> tell him, "No, I'm just a fascinated amateur."
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds like a they, that sounds like a stunning story. I mean, if, if I would, if I'd have been interviewing yeah. him, I I wouldn't have been able to ask the next question because. I would have just been here as I am now. Those of you that can't see me, my jaw was pretty much on the floor, <laughs> just listening to that throughout.
4: It's well worth listening to that episode. It's it's one. Of, it is one of my favourites, and he was a great a great guest. He's, he'd obviously told those stories a number of times, but not had them recorded for for audio. And it's a delight to share those sort of unique stories to, you know, the wider audience.
2: So continuing the theme of the people you've interviewed in the past, people who've experienced the Cold War from every side and at every level, what is the one story that's changed and challenged your view of the Cold War? I don't think there's one story.
4: It's Mm, the sum of the stories. I think, you know, what, what what has changed my view of the Cold War is the... The impact, the human impact of conflict and rigid ideology. I think it's easy to read books about this stuff, and I've sort of sort of mentioned it earlier, but you just don't get the the impact that you get from the spoken word, mm-hmm. from from a book, no matter how um, well it's written. And you know, these the, the individual stories, I just think are, are stronger than that grand strategic view. Um, you know, Arkipov, I would have loved to have been able to interview him about, you know, his, yeah. his experiences. But, you know, I mentioned the 12-year-old girl in Romania. That's Carmen Bugan, who she returned from school uh, to find the Romanian secret police ripping her house apart. And her father had gone on a one-man process in Bucharest and very quickly got arrested. He was held in jail. She thought he was dead. The family were under really severe surveillance. They were confined to about two or three rooms of the house. Microphones everywhere. Couldn't trust who they could speak to. The dogs even got poisoned at one point. I mean, it was a, That's it was a incredible. Step too far. Yeah. Well, it is. That's just not cricket, is it? No. Incredibly powerful story. But then another one that I stumbled across was a guy called Ralph Hanel, who tried to start a kung fu coaching club in east germany um which promptly came under the the eye of the uh the stasi he was arrested by the stasi interrogated i think for nine months and then put in a stasi prison and he gave some really graphic not graphic in a gross way but really graphic descriptions of the stasi interrogation as to how clever it was because they didn't You know, they weren't like the Gestapo where they, you know, straightforward torture. It was much more subtle and psychological in terms of they would try and get people to inform on the basis that, look, if you don't tell us what's going on in this group, then your daughter won't be going to university or your wife will lose her job and become a cleaner in the local hospital or, you know, they were put under all sorts of pressure. and. I'd like to think if I was in that position, I would take the noble route and tell them to get lost. But if you're under that sort of pressure and you don't know the Berlin Wall's going to fall
2: in 1989, yeah. would you? Yeah. If you think this is forever, this yeah. state is going to exist forever. Yeah, of course.
4: Yeah. And and in that period, Paul, as you remember, we thought the Soviet Union was going to be there forever.
3: Yeah. I certainly saw no sign of it disappearing.
4: Yeah. And the Berlin Wall likewise was gonna be there. I mean even Honecker said it will be there for another uh fifty or a hundred years. So there's there's those you know, there's those stories and the unexpected guests. I mean, I ended up talking to an East German army officer who lived in Liverpool. So I went over and home saw from him. Home. At, you know Yeah, I I never <laughs> thought I would be sitting at his the kitchen table of an East German army officer drinking his coffee and talking about his experiences at the 40th anniversary of the GDR parade, which was the last one ever, ever staged and talking to him about him being trained in riot control as the um, protests started to get bigger and bigger in, in East Germany. And likewise, speaking to a guy who was a deep undercover agent for the KGB in the US for ten years. If you've ever watched the TV series *The Americans*, I've watched a um, couple of episodes you... of it. It was basically that that sort of story. He had a complete legend, complete new identity. Even his wife in the US didn't know that he was a, a KGB spy. He still had a wife in East Germany because he was an East German citizen, and it was really interesting talking to him about how do you manage that schizophrenic lifestyle where you're having to be somebody else yet you've got you know family and and a wife back in east east germany who he could only visit perhaps you know once every two years via a short trip to austria and you know inc- incredible stories like that so you know i think that's what i mean about the human impact of the conflict and the rigid ideology you you just get right into those people's lives in a detail that you wouldn't get yeah. from a from most textbooks
3: so what would you like to see done to kind of correct the, that oversight to correct that attitude towards the cold war
4: listen to cold war conversations
3: obviously.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course
4: of yeah course. well
3: great right into that didn't i <laughs>
2: <laughs> well
4: no i mean it's it's difficult but, but When you're so immersed in it, it's difficult to look at it from a position of somebody who's not particularly interested in the subject. They might be interested in one or two of the stories, but for them to actually listen to what I've estimated is probably six or seven days' worth of audio is a, a big ask. But I think the entertainment industry is helping because I think there is more and more of that cold war as either a uh, a background to a story or actually being the main part of the story as i said spies are always popular so you've got films like the courier that came out recently with benedict cumberbatch which is based on a a true story you've got bridge of spies uh which i did did a podcast with a, another podcast called spy Hards, where yeah i was basically telling them where all the um inaccurate bits were in the <laughs> in the film but even you know and i have th- said this before we bridge of spies is that even with the inaccuracies the basis of the story is true there and if it gets people interested in that period and wanting to learn more then then great and there's a limited time to speak to the people who actually live through it so you know, in the same way that people used to say, Oh, well, speak to your dad about his, his war stories. You know, people at school should be speaking to their grandfathers about their experiences in, in, in the Cold War. I mean, some yeah. of them would have been military, some of them would have been peace protesters and you know, others is the you know, there, there's the as as we were talking about earlier, the cultural aspect of the Cold War. Yeah. It's not just about the weapons, it's about yeah. the changes in in culture from the Beatles through to punk and how dissident music was produced in the USSR. You know, they were recording onto uh, X-ray acetates because they couldn't get hold of records. They were recording onto the uh, plastic acetate that they were using for X-rays and releasing those as records in the USSR. (laughs) So it's things like the ingenuity as well that is incredible. I came across a story the other day and, People may be familiar with Solidarity, the free trade union that was formed in Poland. They had to go underground when martial law was declared in 1981. But they had worked out how to interrupt the TV signal in locally for local TV stations and put up a Solidarity logo with a slogan underneath in the middle of TV shows. And so they... They were actually intercepting the broadcast and then rebroadcasting it with, with this thing in, which which I found absolutely incredible. And likewise with that whole TV story, apparently the East Germans to try and stop people going out was it the it might have been Romania. I can't remember which country, but certainly one of the Eastern Bloc countries used to make sure they put on some really popular Western film on TV on the night when they knew there was likely to be a big protest because that would hopefully keep people inside in watching the popular film <laughs> rather than going out on the streets and it's it's little details like that that i continually find intriguing
3: and fascinating
4: yeah and i've probably not answered your question yeah. at all there so <laughs> my
3: apologies if i've drifted i don't know you came out with the yeah. uh... You know, the everybody listens to Cold War conversations, which is uh, that that'll do, yeah, yeah. And if you subscribe, you get a coaster, yeah,
4: Uh, yeah. If you sign up to our Patreon, yeah, you get. I've got one somewhere anyway.
3: Nobody, nobody who's listening can see it. No, exactly.
2: (laughs) Ah, you've got one of the fridge magnets. Mm. Okay, so to start to wrap things up, I I know we're pushing for time, um, and this is quite a big question what would you say is the biggest lesson that the Cold War can teach us today? Um,
4: The biggest lesson is empires fall. No matter how powerful they are, they fall. And they generally fall through people power and the ingenuity of people and the irrepressible spirit of humanity. And I think, The Cold War is a particularly good example of that because it starts out with two massive powers confronting each other, both on completely different ideological spectrums. And one of them starts to fade and eventually just disappears into dust in an incredibly short time. I mean, I remember watching the wall open and the protests in... Romania and and Czechoslovakia and and thinking I'm actually watching real history here this is real history yeah. in my lifetime that I'm expect, you know a monumental moment in history mm. even though it's 30 years ago you know we we, we just spoke earlier and saying the Soviet Union was never going to go in our lifetime or probably our kids lifetimes in 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 our belief at that point
3: so I remember watching the 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 split of the wall the the iconic moment and watching all the protesters who were building up and building up and you had all the camera coverage that was coming from west berlin and I remember watching that with the same kind of foreboding sense of doom for the people involved that I had when I watched the Tiananmen Square protests. She mm. thought that 's you know and that ended up with you know an awful lot of people being shot, which is not the iconic image we have at Tiananmen Square but it ended badly for the people. And I thought you were absolutely convinced that that was going to be exactly the same because the Soviet Union, East Germany, communism was this immovable object. Uh, And there was, no matter how many students come out on the streets, it isn't going anywhere. And then it went somewhere.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can argue that Tiananmen Square possibly prevented bloodshed in East Germany because certainly some in the east yeah. german government looked at that and thought we don't want that here yeah no matter we what
2: want, we don't want this to be our legacy yeah
4: yeah, yeah this to be ours um wow. and likewise in pol i mean poland's a really interesting uh subject for the cold war and again one that just doesn't uh, doesn't get the listenership that I think it deserves because the rise of solidarity, the Free Trade Union, really was the, the first brick coming out of that monolithic wall that eventually toppled it by the Polish government being forced to accept free trade unions. Um, just set a whole train of things running through to, you know, greater democracy in Hungary, which led to them opening their border with Austria, which then destabilised East Germany and eventually obviously ended up with the, with the opening of the of the Berlin Wall but you know Gorbachev at the time had no comprehension what he was putting in train no. when he started with with perestroika and um you know the, all the reforms there and you know it just became uncontrollable after a while and it's just a fascinating time and there's so many fascinating what ifs there as well I think yeah. as well
2: and yeah there's just endless material for counterfactuals and spin-off scenarios as much as you want as deep as you want to go into it.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I, there was a book that I read a while ago. It, it wasn't great actually, but it was it was looking at East Germany if it had survived and was still there in the early 2000s and how it would have been, you know, continuing to um operate and uh it, it's a, it's a really interesting area to uh to look at um and maybe that would make a good movie i don't know
3: we shall see Hmm. well thanks very much ian um you've been our first guest covering the cold war and i think kyle this shouldn't be the last we should get some more people on to cover the cold war era definitely 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 so if you're a cold war historian then get in touch because we'd love to hear what your nuclear flashpoints are If you want to know more about the Cold War firsthand, then frankly, you really can't get a better collection of sources than Ian's podcast, which you can find at coldwarconversations.com and on all good podcast outlets. You can follow Cold War Conversations on Twitter at ColdWarPod. Ian, thank you very much for coming on the show.
4: It's been an absolute pleasure, and I feel much more relaxed now i've managed to get that off my chest thank you so Absolutely. much for the therapy session guys
3: <laughs> ladies and gentlemen i hope you've enjoyed this episode uh, you can follow us on twitter at history rage or individually i am at paul bavel i'm at kyle g history and you can leave comments thoughts and please send your own history rages using the hashtag history rage because we want to know what really gets your goat if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Podchaser, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really means a lot to us when you do that. But thanks a lot for listening. And until next time, bye-bye. Bye.